wars come from? James chapter 4. That's the first question he starts with. Where do wars come from? Now, what kind of war is he talking about? You know, we can think about the conflict that's been going on for centuries in the Middle East. We say, well, where do those wars come from? We can think about the conflict that there is between the Western world and, and uh, radical jihadism. We can think about the war that goes on between two kids at the breakfast table. One won't stop chewing with his mouth open. We can talk about the war that takes place uh, between a, a husband and a wife when each one of them want to get their will done and they don't agree. There, there are all these wars. Some of them we wouldn't call wars. We'd just call them conflicts or a spat or you know whatever. But the reality is that the world that we live in is full of war. So where does war come from is the question that James poses. And he's posing this to a group that apparently already knows that war exists. He's talked about in previous chapters that they're apparently warring over who gets to be a leader in the church. They're warring about who gets to be treated better than others. We've already talked about the the class war between those that have and those that have not in the ways of this world. Um, So where does wars come from? And, And so the first slide I have for you this morning is where do wars come from among you? So he starts in chapter 4 by saying, where do wars and fights come from among you? Where's this all stirring up from? Why are you guys battling? And he's, remember, the context of this, he's writing to the church of Jesus Christ. He's writing to people who claim to follow the king of peace. So, You follow the king of peace. He's died on the cross to remove the war between you and God. Where are these wars coming from? And and it's a good question, right? We all know about the wars that have historically been in the church. We know that the church is rife. If you look at the history of the church, there's been wars between Protestants and Catholics. There's been wars between uh, just tradition and and, and we're only going to follow what Scripture says, you know, the, the Reformation movement. And so we also know that there's always been these wars that go on within churches that many times it's a household word, church split, right? Everyone's either been a part of one, knows people that have been a part of one, or has caused one. You know, that's the reality. And many times we look at it and go, well, churches just split sometimes, Families just split sometimes. And, and while that is the case, it is not God's desire. God's desire is that we would dwell together in peace and unity. And that's the unity that the world can't bring. We can't make people, we can't make a law and say, you guys got to get along. How's that work with your kids? It doesn't. How's that work with spouses? It just doesn't. Now, we know that the rule is, what God's taught through Jesus Christ is that you can't legislate the heart. You can't make enough laws for no one to ever war. As a matter of fact, the more laws, the more aggravated people get because they feel squeezed by the laws. So Christ gives us freedom to make choices, and he never nails us down. He's a gentleman, but he says, hey, (laughs) Psalm 133 verse 1 says, behold how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And he compares it to oil poured over the head of someone who is anointed to be in a particular position. 
as oil poured over the head of Aaron to be the priest, the high priest of the faith in the Old Testament, and that oil dripping down his beard. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read that verse and I've thought, well, that's kind of gross. I don't want oil dripping down. But the picture is that oil that the, the shepherd would pour over the head of a sheep, that oil is poured over the head, and when it's poured over the head, the gnats don't flow towards his face and get in his eyes and make him all agitated and on edge all the time. It actually creates this restfulness in the sheep. And so the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the only way that there can be pleasantness among brethren to dwell together in unity. And actually, Jesus even said that you will, they will know that you are Christians by the love that the world witnesses among you. And if you think about it, even just in this small room with our little group, you think about the different areas and walks of life that we've all come from, the one thing that we have in common is our King of Peace. Many of us weren't raised in the same situations, financially, uh, locationally. We've all been brought together because Jesus Christ is our King and He's called us to dwell together and to live life together, to do life together, to learn of Him, to sit at His feet, to worship Him, to make Him number one priority, to follow Him in all of His ways. And so uh, there can be wars over class, over jobs, church politics, personal conflict. You can just keep adding to that list. We can find something to fight about in every aspect of life. We know that. It's unknown. And so where does this war and battling come from among you? Now he says, if you go down to verse 11 and 12 of this same chapter, he says, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother, he speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're no longer a doer of the law, but you've made yourself a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? We're not called to judge one another. Now, there's a distinctive here because there's a difference between judging, that's like to make an eternal sentence on someone, even in our courts, there's only one person that gets to decide that, and he presides over the court, right? But in this case, he's not talking about inspecting fruit. We are also our brother's keeper. We are to watch over one another's lives. Not to be a busybody, but to be someone who can hold each other accountable. To look at each other's lives and love each other enough to pray for one another, but also to be willing to deal with the thing that we might be doing that's the same. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5 says, you know, it, basically, don't judge the brother who has a splinter in his eye. If you've got a plank sticking out of yours, he says, first, take the plank out of your eye, deal with your own weakness, your own sin, repent of it, and then go and help the weaker brother. And the idea being that if you know what it's like to have to pull a plank out of your eye, you're going to be a lot more sensitive when you try to help your brother or sister with their sin problem. You're going to be gentle. You're going to be kind. You're going to be grace-filled. You're not going to go in there and start wailing on them with the Bible. You're going to recognize that, that you, didn't, you wouldn't want that. You're going to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're going to recognize that you need to be meek and mild with them because if you win them, if they actually turn from their sin and repent, you've actually gained your brother. The idea is not just for the moment, but for eternity. 
Because those of us that continue habitually in sin, there's, there's, a, there's a judgment that comes. And so God wants us to be free from those things. So rather than being warring among each other, we're actually supposed to be a blessing to one another. Anytime my kids start wrestling each other, now there's the fun play. But there's also the time where you know it's like, okay, there's the line. We hit it. They're now beating on each other and they're, they're raging. And at that point, it's like, hey, wait a minute. And I'll ask my son, even now, while he's almost three years old, I'll look at him and say, why are you hurting your sister? And he'll say, I don't know. And I'll say, um, God gave you your sister so you can protect her, so you can love her, so you can bless her. And I'll tell her that same thing. Why are you stealing stuff from your brother? Because it's mine. It's only yours because I gave it to you. Oh, so you should share. Okay. You know, of course, we'll have that same conversation a million times. I get that. I'm not naive, but I'm trying to be a peacemaker in my own house. And so the reality is we are to be peacemakers, but if we don't have any peace ourselves, we can't be. We end up being uh, war causers. We start pouring gasoline on flickering flames and we start blowing things up in our own homes and in the body of Christ. And so in James chapter uh, 4, verse 1 through 3, going back to where we were in the beginning of the chapter, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have, he says, because you don't ask. And so in verse 1 through 3, well, I guess I need to keep going because verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So again, that idea of your pleasures leading your behavior rather than obedience. And so he says, where do wars come from? They come from within you. Stop blaming others. Well, if he wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that. That's a lie. You did that because you wanted to get this and you went about it the wrong way. And so he says there, where do wars and fights come from among you? They come from within. And we know that because in chapter 1, he's already said this. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For number one, God cannot be tempted by evil. Number two, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire. That problem in the heart, that seed that's there, and enticed. So when desire or lust in your heart meets up with opportunity, that's when sin is conceived and brings forth, what does sin always bring forth? Death. From Genesis chapter 3 on. There we have it. If you sin, on the day that you sin, you will die, he said to Adam and Eve. And then Satan comes along and says, well, surely you won't die. He's just afraid that you're going to become like him, that you're going to find out something that he's withholding from you. But from us, God's children, God will withhold no good thing. He might withhold some bad things, but he won't withhold good things. He delights to give his children good gifts. 
And every good and perfect gift, James chapter 1 says, comes down from the Father of lights. With There is no partiality. He doesn't give some good gifts to you and some not to you because of some experience. He gives good gifts to all of his children. He treats us all the same. And so he says there, where do they come from among you? They come from within. So recognize this. This is a big theme. He says, where do wars come from among you? Why are you battling each other? Because you got a heart problem. You got a war that's going on within you. And that war is, am I going to obey God or am I going to obey myself? We put ourselves in the place of God. We become the captain of our fate, to quote a modern day poet. We become the master of our soul, the captain of our fate. But the reality is when we become Christ's, then we become his and our life, the life that we now live is no longer our own, but it's his. He purchased it with his own blood. He has the rights to what we get to do. He has the rights to our future. It's no longer I who live, but it's now Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live is a life that's given over to serve God and glorify him. It's not about me anymore. So the reality is that the essence of sin is selfishness. It's thinking about self. When Eve was tempted in the garden, she was tempted to better herself, to forget the command of God and to do what she thought would be best in her eyes. And so in Joshua chapter 7, we have this story right after a well-known story where Jericho is the, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. So that story is the first city that God sent them in to conquer in the land of Canaan. They've already crossed over the Red Sea. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness. They finally crossed into the land of promise, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and then to Jacob that, that was passed down. They get into the land, and it's full of giants. It's full of fortified cities. It's not just this blank land they go in and take. It's this land full of people that go, this is our land. This land is my land. This land ain't your land. So get out of here, you know, and we can go on. But the reality, apparently I'm a sing-along this morning. It's just where I'm at, okay? But the reality is they go into this land and they're afraid. And God says, don't be afraid. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to conquer these enemies if you'll trust me. So he says, I want you to go in. I want you to march around the city for seven days. And I want you to send the worship leaders ahead. They're going to go up there with their lyres. They're going to go up there with their, their, uh, their horns, and they're going to blow the horns. But the, you're going to go around for seven days and just march around in silence. And on the seventh day, God said, okay, when I say, everybody make as much racket as you can. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm close to the enemy walls, and I know they've got city walls built up. They did this because they had archers on the walls. It's for their protection. That's why we put fences around our yards. We don't want some stuff coming in, and we don't want some little ones getting out, or our dogs. So they're marching close to the walls, and the last thing you'd want to do is go, hey, we're right here, we're in shooting range. But that wasn't the point. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty and pulling down the strongholds of God or of the enemy. And that weapon that we have is praise and it's prayer. 
And so as they go around, they're just going, okay, Lord, we're doing what you told us. He says on the seventh day, he told them to, to blow his horn. And when, when they blew their horns and they made all this racket and they shouted, God delivered them and knocked down the walls. They didn't touch them. God did it. And so they were supposed to go in, defeat everyone, kill everyone. I know it sounds horrible. We'll talk about that when we get to the Old Testament. But as they were to defeat them and utterly wipe them out, they were supposed to, in that first battle, leave the spoils. Take nothing. Destroy everything as an offering to the Lord. But there was one man who was in there, and he was defeating the enemy, and he, was, and he saw this idol. Now, they just left Egypt a couple generations ago, but there's still this desire for stuff that's shiny. We kind of have the same thing. It's just in 20-inch wheels or whatever, 24 or whatever they are now. Or we want more chrome, or we want the bling. You know, and Maybe you guys aren't that way, but there's something in your life where you're like, that's shiny and I want it, whether it's a chainsaw or whatever. So the reality is they, they go in, and, and then there's this one man who disobeys the command of God, and he thinks, you know what, I'm sinning, but the reality is, I don't know if he thought about it this much or not. He goes, What's, who's it going to affect? This is just between, it's just me. My sin doesn't affect everybody. But we find out in Joshua chapter 7 that it affected everybody. Because as they get ready to go to their next battle, there's sin in the camp. And that sin causes them to be confused, to have no direction, and to be defeated. So in Joshua chapter 7, it says, The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. God can't bless sin. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of the Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Pride. They're starting to give instruction to Joshua, who is the commander. And they go in, saying, You know what? We just walked around the other place. This place isn't nearly as big as Jericho. We got this. Tell you what, as a believer you start living your life with this thought of, I got this, beware. You're about to be routed by your enemies. You're about to be defeated because I got this is saying, you know, God, you helped me out on the last one, but now I've seen how the ropes go. So now I'm going to go forth in my own strength because this isn't even as big of a fight. So I'm good. And so he says, about 3,000 men went up there from the people in other words, they didn't send everybody, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, so people died because of their pride. For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. They were struck with fear. They were defeated. They were running away from their enemies. God said he would go before them and defeat all of their enemies. And they said, well, I got it. And then next thing you know, they've turned tail, they're losing people to death, and all of a sudden their hearts are melting like wax. They're afraid of their enemies again. Then Joshua tore his clothes, this is a sign of mourning, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord, 
that evening, and he, the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Have you brought us over to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. So now they're questioning God's salvation from the beginning. This is a slippery slope. When we doubt God, when we try to take things into our own hands, we're just looking for defeat. And so for the Canaanites, he says, Oh, verse 80 says, Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Your your glory is at stake, Lord. Did you know that? God's glory is at stake in our lives. If we claim to be Christians, and yet we're constantly defeated by sin and pride, it brings shame to the name of God. Now, he's okay with that. He, he, knows our, he knows we're a mess. He's not afraid of that. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, it says, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed thing among you. So what does God tell them to do? Get up, sanctify the people. What does sanctify mean? It's the same idea as holy. Set apart. Did you know as Christians, we're not supposed to be like the rest of the world? We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be like the special china you only get out when certain people come over. Ours just happens to be paper plates. That's our special china. So if you come over and we have paper plates, like that's the good stuff. Because we want to spend time with you. We don't want to, want to wash the dishes. But the, we're, we're set apart for God's use. We're not supposed to be used for common things anymore. We're not supposed to be spittoons. We're supposed to be vessels that carry the Holy Spirit. And so he says, set, sanctify the people. Set them apart and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there's an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. So here's what's going to happen. Little by little, there's going to be a a time allowed where God's going to, by casting lots and by words from the Lord, he's going to set apart each tribe and he's going to narrow it down and find out who sinned. Now, God already knows, but I want to point out to you that God is going to go through this process that he doesn't have to. He could have said, Joshua, it's aching. He's aching. He's hurting. He's not going to repent. So go ahead and stone him to death. He could have done that. Did you know that God can do that with us? At any moment, he, he doesn't have to be long-suffering. He's holy. He's God. He could just snuff us out. He could do what everybody thinks he's going to do. He, I'm not going to church. Selah's going to fall in on me. Oh, if you only knew what he could do. He's going to strike me with lightning because I just said this or that. He could. Let's not joke about that. 
But the reality is he's going to go through this process and slowly divide up the tribes until he gets down to one family, one clan, one person. And I believe that this is God's long-suffering. He's slowly thinning the herd, showing that he's coming down to the exact... And that guy knows that he's, got the, he's the one causing the problem. So he has two options. Hide or remain in pride. You can hide and act like God can't find it. That's silly. Or just confess it. Lord, it's me. I deserve to be punished. I'd rather humble myself than let you humble me. So many people pray, God, humble me. He will. And I'm not saying you, sh- you can't pray that. I'm just saying, why don't you just humble yourself? He's given you free will to do that. He's given you the power to humble yourself. So he narrows it down until he finds Achan. And what we find out is that not only is Achan stoned to death, but all of his family that knew about it, they're destroyed as well. You don't take down just one person. 36 people died in the battle because of his sin. He died, and the family that he was so loved so much, he actually took them down with him. That's humbling as a man. That's humbling to me because I have the power to lead my family to Jesus or to push them away from him. So Joshua 7, Achan causes Israel's defeat because of taking forbidden loot from Jericho. Verse 3, selfishness leads to wrong actions. Or verse 2, look at verse 2. He says, you lust and you do not have. So you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. Selfishness, sin, leads to wrong actions. I don't have what I want, so I'm going to break God's commands to do it. But then verse 3, it leads to wrong praying. When you do ask and you're in selfishness and sin, you do not receive because you ask for the wrong things. You ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're praying to get your will done instead of God's will done. And I put there for you, even though I don't remember who said it, forgive me, prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven. Stop praying to get your will done in heaven. Prayer is so that we can get God's will done on earth. Prayer changes us. We're not changing God's mind by how we pray. We begin to pray, and as we pray, God sorts through things. He says no to things. He says wait on things. And then eventually we start going, you know what? If I just prayed according to God's will, maybe I get a lot more yeses. And we start to surrender to his plans instead of our own. Now, the reality is when we are wanting more than we have, uh, we're breaking the, one of the commandments. Thou shalt not covet. It's the last of the commandments. And yet what we find out is that last commandment in Exodus chapter 20, if you covet, if you want more than God's given you or more than you have, you, you're essentially going, if you want it bad enough and you're unwilling to surrender to the Lord's provision and recognize that if you don't have it, you don't need it, and you start asking for things that are outside of the will of God or asking for, you know, in, in Exodus chapter 20, he says, he gives some examples. He says in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's a hard one for us. Many of us, as Americans, we move more than anybody else does. We're always looking for the greater thing. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. There's a biggie. 
nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his big stinking pickup truck with 24-inch rims and off-road tires. You know, like we always want something else, don't we? If we're not careful, it becomes covetousness. Nor anything, that's your neighbor's. Who's your neighbor? (laughs) Whose things are you wanting that are not for you? And so um, covetousness is what leads to breaking all the other commandments if you're not careful. We will fight, we will war, we will steal. Um, You murder, you hate. Yet you do not have what you want because you do not ask. God wants to give us what we ask for when it's in his will. He compares this sin to adultery. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God? So this war within us begins because we have war between us and God still. The war is really with God. So he says, where does war come from among you? It comes from within. Where does that war within you come from? You're battling with God. But we don't see the battle that's between us and God. We see the battle that's between us and others. And that's, that battle that's between us and others is really a symptom. That symptom is to show us we got a heart problem. And that symptom is to reveal to us we got a God problem. That we've put ourselves in the place of God. We say, well, if I want it, I should be able to get it. And the reality is that's, that's my will be done, not your will be done, God. And so the root cause of every war internally or externally is rebellion against God. Those who war with God, by the way, lose. They lose practically. They lose eternally. They lose. They, you can't win against God. He's a little stronger, just, just a little. By a little, I mean not only stronger, but he holds the breath that goes in and out of your lungs. He keeps your heart beating. I don't, want to bat, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds, practically. And so, I already read there, but he says in, in Exodus 20, but in verse 3, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And oftentimes, I think we make the mistake of thinking, well, I don't have an idol in my house that I bow down to. I'm not like people in India. I've been to India, by the way. They got these ornate buildings, and people are in poverty everywhere. But they got these buildings they just keep fixing and keep making beautiful. They're covered in gold, and they got these idols in there. They got incense burning, and people are starving everywhere, and yet they're taking little sacks of oranges and apples and all these fruits, mangoes especially in India, they, and then they hang them on their God. You know what they do with them at the end of the day? They're rotten. They have to throw them away. And yet there's people in, in India that are starving to death with no food, but they've got to keep feeding their gods. And let me tell you, if you've got a God that you're serving, whether it's you or whether it's a hobby or whether it's uh, people in your life that you're trying to appease, you always have to feed those gods. You don't have to feed our God. He's the bread of life. He's living water. He su- supplies to us according to his riches in Christ Jesus, but he doesn't do it so we can spend it on our own pleasures and lusts. So we may not have idols. We may not have a statue that we bow down to, but let me ask you, what are you idolizing? Is it your career? Many of us would say, no, not really. I just got to pay the bills. 
Uh, is it your children? Do you give them everything that they want? And yet when God says, I want you to give them something else, you go, well, I can't. I'm giving it to this. Is, is it your bank account? Is it your 401k? For most of us, it's probably not. But, but the reality is we all serve things that are not God if we're not careful. And so what are your pleasures? What are your lusts? And the reality is that will change the way you relate with people if you serve other gods because the, the main rule that Jesus gave was you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your increase. But then he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So they had a God problem. They had replaced God with themselves. My question is, do you have a God problem? If you do, you'll know because there will be turmoil within you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said there that you cannot serve two masters. And I want to submit to you that you can try. It is, it is exhausting. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Do you ever find yourself despising God? I have. Confession time, I have. But I always find myself despising God when I'm trying to serve another God and Him. If you start despising God's command, if you start despising God's people, I would submit to you many times it's because you're serving something else other than our God. Because when you serve God and Him only, His commands are actually kind of a joy. It's no longer, you don't ever, ever feel like you have to do it. It's, it's, you're just thankful for what he's done and you want to. You want to please him. There will be no despising of those commands because that's who you're serving. It's, yes, sir, how high do you want me to jump? And, it, and it's just, it's freeing. It's enjoyable. And so uh, we can't serve both God and wealth. We can't serve God and confidence in ourselves. We can't serve God and whatever it is, fill in the blank, the thing that you trust in. You can't serve God and your kids. You can't serve God and your spouse. The fear of man is a very big thing. We can't serve both. And so, verse 6 and 7, hopefully I read uh, verse 4 and 5. I talked about idolatry here, so I'll read verse 4. He says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or war with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, that God is jealous over us, our affections, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here's where the rubber meets the road. I have two options here. I can remain in my pride and say God's way isn't the best way, or I can humble myself and receive grace. The idea of being, he says he resists the proud. So it's like you're getting stiff-armed by God, you know, when you're prideful and you say, well, I can do it my own way. God just 
He stiff arms us. You ever watch a football game where a guy starts running through a crowd of football players and he stiff arms them and he does it right? People just fall over. And that's not even God. That's just some football player. But he gives grace to the humble. Did you know that God is attracted to humility? He can't help it. He sees a humble and a contrite spirit. Psalm 51 says he has yet to deny a humble and a broken spirit. So, likewise, he says there, I wrote there for you, pride divides, humility unites. So if there's pride, there's always going to be division. There's always going to be wars. There's always going to be fighting. There's going to be my will against your will. But humility in the sight of God actually unites the body of Christ. So our solution, it's the same as Jesus in the wilderness, temptation. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are all tempted. We all experience temptation. We all experience trials. We all experience lies. We, always, we all experience these opportunities where we can take shortcuts. And yet Jesus in the wilderness, right after being baptized, was driven to the wilderness, and he submitted to the will of God. Being God himself, and yet he put off his human, his, he didn't have super God powers. That's what I'm trying to say. Here on earth, Jesus didn't walk around like Clark Kent and just once in a while, you know, take off the, the News Daily shirt. He, he actually had no, he, he gave up his power when he left heaven. And he showed us what it was life, like to live a life of being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the power of the Holy Spirit do the miracles. All the power that he showed doing miracles wasn't him. It was the Spirit being free to flow through him. And so, uh, our solution is the same as his, to submit to God, submit ourselves to God, to humble ourselves and obey his simplest of commands. And then once we've done that, then resist the devil. What we find in the story of Achan is once they did what God told them to, which was sanctify themselves, become holy again, which meant they had to repent. They had to cut off the flesh. They had to kill the man who had transgressed the commandment. And once they did, the blessing of God was then against them, or with, excuse me, not against them. The blessing of God once again could be upon them. And then God gave them instruction. They humbled themselves, did what he said, and then guess what they did with Ai? They defeated Ai. There was no problem. But they had to humble themselves first and receive the command, you've got to put out the sin. You've got to repent. You've got to get that guy out of your midst. And then they could resist the devil. And then the devil will flee from you, he says in verse 7. Therefore, he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So that, that's what can be done. But what does submitting to God look like? What does submission to God look like? In verse 8 through 10, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humbling ourselves. We don't like that. We don't. I, I don't like humbling myself. 
I don't like my boss telling me what to do, to be frankly honest. It, I struggle with that. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the king over me. I'm an American. You don't tell me what to do. I'm entitled. And yet when we don't surrender, when we don't humble ourselves before God, we're setting ourselves up for judgment. But he says, if you'll draw near to him, he will draw near to you. God's attracted to that brokenness, that humility, that true, I can't do it on my own, God, I need you. Much like the father in Luke chapter 15. And if you'll turn there with me, I love this story because um, in Luke, I kind of relate more to the son that didn't run off and spend his, his inheritance. Luke chapter 15 the story of the prodigal son. We all know the story. The young son demands that his father gives him his inheritance. He takes the inheritance. He runs off to Vegas. He carouses with women. He spends his time living it up for the world. And he spends it all to the point where he has nothing left. And on his way back, he's trying to earn a living. He's trying to make money so he can have food to eat. And the, it, he's finally at the lowest point. By the way, those who are going to hit rock bottom, sometimes rock bottom, they'll dig through it, they'll chisel through it. Pride will make you chisel through rock bottom and find a new bottom. There's no end to the pit. But the reality is, for this young man, rock bottom for him was when he was feeding and slopping pigs and he was eating pods that they were feeding to the, the swine and he found himself thinking, I wonder if that tastes any good that's probably all right. I'll, I'm going to eat some. And then he came to his senses and realized, what am I doing? I'm eating pig slop. My dad's still at home. He's got servants that he feeds. I could at the very least go home and say, dad, can I be one of your servants? They eat way better than I did on the road. And I've, so he finally humbles himself. And he heads back home. And I guarantee that was a long walk. Playing through his head, what am I going to say? Man, I'm an idiot. Why did I do this? And in verse 20 through 21, we see the heart of our Father in heaven. Verse 20 and 21. It says, in verse uh, 18, he says, I will arise and go to my Father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So you know what? When we recognize we're not worthy of what we've been given, it changes our whole outlook and our attitude. And he rose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. The word there is mercy. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed his son. His son didn't have to say a thing. He recognized humility from afar off. He drew near to his father, and his father drew near to him. He ran to him, opened his arms, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found, and they began to be merry. Humility led to blessing. True brokenness. So he said, Father, I've sinned against you. 
And I think sometimes we don't recognize that we're in sin. And we call it a mistake. And we give excuses for it. And yet if we'll call it what God calls it, oh, how he wants to bless us. So how are we to cleanse our hands, sinners, and purify our hearts? Number one, we have to recognize that we're sinners. We have to ask God to cleanse our hands. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter giving this big, huge confession and this presentation of the gospel, this man that had denied Christ so many times, yet filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 38 of chapter 2, he says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What's the word remission mean? Removal. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So it's available to everybody. And then in Romans chapter 10, he goes further to explain it. This cleansing can't be done. It's not something where we can take enough baths. It's not something where we can earn God's favor. He says that if you confess with your mouth, verse 9, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? Belief in Jesus and who he said he was and is. And with the mouth, confession. With our mouths, confessing who we really are and confessing who God is, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I believe that this confession is not one that stops after we get saved. That this is a confession we have to daily confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That he saves me for eternity, positionally, but that day by day he is saving me as I humble myself in his sight and let him take control. And then guess what happens to those wars and those fights and those skirmishes amongst the brethren? They go away because we see ourselves in his perspective and we're like, I don't know why he wants anything to do with me. I don't know how he could save a wretch like me. I'm made of dirt, but I'm full of filth. And so how about you? Is your life full of war with others or does the peace that you have with God cause you to be ambassadors of peace to those warring around you? Truly, think about this. Is your life full of turmoil internally and with others? Or is it one that is a peacemaking life? Because it all comes down to if you're full of war and strife and war with others, it's probably you that's the problem. And it's probably your relationship with God. And I would encourage you this morning as we get ready to take communion that you would think about this. Lord, where am I truly at? Am I a contender or am I a pretender? Am I confessing on the outside to be what I'm, what I'm supposed to be and yet not what I'm supposed to be on the inside? God's not looking for a humble and a contrite actions. He's looking for a humble and contrite heart internally that will cause the actions to change. And I tell you what, when you, the heart is changed, the actions change naturally. 
your words change naturally. And so, um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. As we get ready to take communion this morning, I just want to remind you that, that we're taking this meal that God offered us in Jesus at the Passover. He's getting ready to give his body and his blood as this lamb that came to take away the sin of the world, the sacrifice on our behalf. And they'd been doing this for forever since the exodus from Egypt. They'd been practicing Passover. And the Passover was this picture of what Jesus was going to do, that his life would be given for our lives and the blood spread over our lives would cause the, the angel of death to pass over and for this mercy to be shown in our lives, the firstborn of the households then to be spared, and our lives to be spared now. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread, verse 27, or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So taking it unworthily can actually make us guilty. But taking it by faith, with repentance and humility can actually cause for there to be a, a time of worship. He says, let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this is a time to examine ourselves and to be challenged by what God's shown you through his word this morning. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment or condemnation to himself, not discerning that the Lord's body is in this. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, he writes to the Corinthians, and many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we won't be judged. That's the blessing in it. If we'll take this time of examination and we would actually commit to the Lord what we really know about ourselves to be true in Him, then we won't be judged. It will cause us to be quickened to the things that the Lord is grieved by. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So let God judge your heart as we take communion this morning. I'm going to lead in a song of worship. You guys can come up and get the elements, and then afterwards we'll take communion together.